Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. It's an old joke, but when a man argues against two beautiful ladies like this, they're going to have the last word. She spoke, not elegantly, but with unmistakable clarity. She said, I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet off our necks. Welcome to a very special episode of Strict Scrutiny. It is our second ever live show, and we are doing this one at Boston University School of Law in the absolutely lovely uh, city space space. Thank you for having us, WBUR. You guys are the best. And thank you, Boston University, for such a warm welcome. So we have a super exciting show today. Yes, we do. Um, So we're going to cover some breaking news. Uh, Then we are going to do two case previews, Sinanang Smith and Sela versus CFPB. Uh, And then we are going to do an interview with Professor Danielle Citron, strict scrutiny, super fan. And genius. MacArthur genius. And also recently appointed strict scrutiny ninja. And she will be showing you some of her strict scrutiny ninja skills when we get there. No pressure. (laughs) All good. So should we start with the breaking news? Let's do it. Okay. Um, So for those of you in the legal profession, um, as we assume many of our listeners are, though not all of them, uh, you probably heard about the congressional hearing that happened last week, uh, February 13th, in which, among other people, a former law clerk to Judge Stephen Reinhardt, Olivia Warren, testified about her experience in chambers, which included extremely severe, serious, pervasive sexual harassment. Um, We are going to come back to talking about this more in a later episode, um, just because we don't have the time to discuss all of the things that I think are important to discuss um, in this particular episode, Um, but also because I think a lot of what is important about her testimony we can only talk about on a longer time horizon when we see, for example, what happens as a result of it and how people respond and what they do after she very specifically described all of the many obstacles she encountered in trying to report the harassment um, to different possible entities or persons. Yep. And I'll just add, so I had testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee on similar issues about two years ago, and I think One of the frustrating parts for me is seeing kind of how uneven the progress has been um, on this stuff. And 
I think the, you know, there are some circuits that have done a lot of work. The DC circuit has done a, you know, a pretty good job at, um, at, at, at making changes. Um, there are other circuits that have done not very much. And I, I would say overall, I, I think that the judiciary has been a little quick to take a victory lap. Um, especially when there is, they have no data, none whatsoever, zero, um, to, to demonstrate any kind of change, cultural change that has occurred. Um, that they have not done any workplace climate surveys uh, as a whole to kind of see how are people feeling. Um, do, are people still concerned about uh, retaliation? Do people feel like there are adequate reporting avenues? Um, so that's been the most frustrating aspect to me. Uh, but but as Leah said, we're definitely going to talk about this more on on future episodes. So before we segue, can I just say like, I know that law schools and law professors in particular have borne I think the brunt of this of the critique, right? Just that law schools and law professors have not been as transparent as they might be with prospective clerks, um, haven't alerted their students to the dangers on um, law schools, especially have been pushing students toward clerkships because it is an important credential for the law school to be able to say that they have these really robust numbers of clerks. And I think all of that is true. Um, and you know, I have been certainly guilty of encouraging my students to pursue I mean, I a clerkship. I also encourage students to clerk. Well, I just to be clear, though, I mean, I think the transparency thing is hard because I think like there's uneven information. And, you know, I while I knew many things about Judge Kaczynski, for example, I'd heard things over the years. I had never heard this about Judge Reinhardt, which, you know, raises the point that misconduct can come in lots of different forms. Like lots of people knew that Judge Kaczynski could be untoward because he did it publicly yes, and often in a very humiliating manner for the clerk who was the victim of it. Um, apparently Judge Reinhardt did all of this very privately. So you might not have known the extent of it all. I mean, all I ever heard was that it was a hard clerkship, like just sort of, you know, punishing in terms of the workload. Um, I, I still come back to, regardless of what law schools or law professors may know about the transparency, I think it is not just incumbent on law schools to do something here. In both the case of Judge Kaczynski and Judge Reinhardt, um, I think the, clerk, the court had a huge role to play in this. I mean, these were two very prominent theater judges. And to the extent that people continued to send their students to them, whether they knew or not, um, it was because those two clerkships were well regarded as safe and assured conduits to Supreme Court clerkships because the justices routinely took their clerks from the ranks of those two chambers. But then I wonder, how were the justices supposed to know about the conduct that was happening in those chambers? Because I don't know that I can expect a clerk Mm-hmm. of these justices to confide in them about their experience sure. the prior year. But that's where I do think law professors or law schools might have had some role to play because after you clerk for a judge or justice, you develop a different relationship with them and you might then be in a position to share with that justice what your experience in your prior clerkship was like. And so that is one possible avenue that would have allowed the Supreme Court to do something about the fact that they were enabling these judges. So I think that's probably right for something like Reinhardt, where it may not be publicly known, but the Alex Kaczynski thing is, I mean, like that was, I think, very well known. And it wasn't like they stopped drawing their own clerkship choices from the ranks of those courts. I mean, like if you limit the market, 
nobody's going to want to clerk for that person. I mean, and, and like if, and, and this happens all the time. I mean, like law and economics, like who, like who knew I could talk about this, but when you limit I knew the, Melissa. <laughs> like if you limit the demand for it, the supply will shrink too. And, and, and the judge might get the sense, like if the, if the supply of prospective clerks dries up that, you know, I've got to change behavior. And I, I think for me, I am less, I, I know that there is a kind of, a lot of kind of blame going around. I'm less interested in that. And I'm more interested in um, trying to speak about what law schools and law professors and the court and the judiciary and mentors and, and everyone can do to address this for the future. I mean, that's, that's my primary concern. Yeah. But I do think you have to reckon with the past to get to the future. Yeah. Right. In order to figure out how we prevent the same thing from happening in the past, we have to figure out what led yeah. to this happening in the past. I just don't want students to be like, you know what, I'm done with clerkships. No, because clerkships I think are incredible. I, especially for first generation or minority law students, yeah. these are such like important credentials that can level the playing field and in, in, introduce you to a network that you otherwise might not have. They're incredibly important. Yep. So I also, before we segue, I just want to put down two placeholders perhaps for our future discussion. Um, one is just to make it explicit, because I feel like part of this has gotten lost just in the um, fallout from the hearing, is to underscore how brave it was for Liv Warren yes. to testify before Congress. Um, it is impossible to overstate how much courage and strength it took for her to do that. Um, and I remember before she testified, I was talking to her and I told her that she should expect to be hurt or disappointed in ways and by people that she didn't expect just based on like my own experience. Sorry, I didn't mean, <laughs> this is so awkward. And she said that, like, that's still true. That's how, how she feels now. And she said it's okay for me to share that, so I'm not sharing something that she wouldn't want shared. But um, you just get a sense that, like, when you see some of the responses and the reactions to her testimony that some people wish this wouldn't have happened or wish it wouldn't be out there. And what also seems to have gotten lost is the second part of her testimony, which is the utter failure of all of the institutions that were the places for her to go to report, to do anything. One, when she tried to report to them, she tried to report to the law school, she tried to report to the you know, new judicial office for workplace conduct and integrity in both places, did nothing or like rebuffed her advances. And then the other option was for her to report to other Ninth Circuit judges when her own experience was that these Ninth Circuit judges were deriding the accusers of Judge Kaczynski and the accusations against him, and they were not going to do anything if it was against one of their friends. And, you know, this woman went before Congress. She said what happened when she was asked questions. She had the, you know, strength and, like, lawyerly skills to make a joke about canons of legal interpretation. I mean, just the, the sheer superpowers and character and lawyerly skills of this woman are impossible to overstate. And that is one thing that I wish would be more foregrounded in what people are talking about with respect to the hearing. And the second is just the second part of her testimony, which is the failure of these institutions and people to do anything when she tried to tell them what was happening. Co-signed. In the early part of February, we learned that Judge Deborah Batts of the Southern District of New York had passed away. And Judge Batts was 
truly, truly a trailblazer, um, an African-American woman. She's a graduate of Radcliffe College and Harvard Law School. And when she was appointed to the bench in 1994, she was actually the first openly gay judge in the entire United States. Um, she's truly a trailblazer in almost every aspect of her professional life at the Cravath Law Firm as an assistant U.S. attorney. She's the first African-American professor on the faculty at Fordham. And when she joined the Southern District of New York, um, she presided over some notable cases, including the civil litigation involving the Exonerated Five, also known as the Central Park Five. Um, in that litigation, she rejected the New York City's um, motion to dismiss that lawsuit, and it actually resulted in the city settling with the Exonerated Five in 2014. She was set to preside over the embezzlement trial of Michael Avenatti um, over whether or not he embezzled $300,000 from Stormy Daniels, um, but she passed away in her sleep in early February. She survived by her wife, Dr. Gwen Zornberg, and two children, um, and many friends and family who miss her and love her, including Justice Sonia Sotomayor, who recalled that they had both been recommended to federal judgeships on the same day. And as she said, from that day forward, we became sisters. She lived her life openly and earnestly with fortitude and conviction. So rest in power, Judge Batts. So I can turn this to a bit more optimistic and exciting breaking news. It's been kind of a downer. It's been, but this is going to cheer you up. All right. We have finally achieved gender parity, ladies. For the February oral argument sitting, <laughs> women have as many arguments as men named Paul. Yes. 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 Yes, guys. queen. Yes. Incredible. And, and, and when you think about it, this is huge progress over January when there were more men named Jonathan arguing in the January sitting than there were women arguing in the January sitting. So just in one month, right? right that's huge. 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 What huge a difference a Paul makes. Yeah. I love that. I love, like, way um, to go. So yes, yeah, so uh, the, the, in, in the calendar, there are 24 oral argument spots. Um, women are arguing three of them. Yes. Um, so, you know, continued excitement at the court. I can't wait till we get to four. I'm going to bust out of this vest when we do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be so lit. <laughs> Absolutely. Mm. Um, I can't say much more about that without screaming. So I think we should, I think we should move on. I think we should, because uh, we have some exciting cases to discuss. And some guests. And some very special guests. None of whom it's are named Paul. It's not just an empty chair. <laughs> or Jonathan. No, no Jonathans or Pauls on this podcast. And we'd like to announce our first guest, Sarah Sherman Stokes. The Sarah is the director of the Immigrant Rights Clinic here at Boston University, and so she is going to help us with our discussion of United States versus Sinanang Smith. Thank you all so much. I'm so stoked to be here, and I see all my clinic students You're sitting in the so second so row. Stoked, so stoked. Yeah, <laughs> pun intended. I'm the right? first one who has ever made that joke to her, <laughs> guaranteed. Yeah, my students, I think, are here for a grade, but it's not happening, guys. <laughs> um, yeah, no, very, very excited to be here. 
talk about this immigration First Amendment case. So the case is about the constitutionality of a federal statute that makes it a crime to induce or encourage a person to live in the United States or remain in the United States without legal authorization. And so Ms. Sinanang Smith was prosecuted and convicted under this statute as well as the mail fraud statute for fraudulently encouraging individuals to submit applications to a labor program that uh, DHS was running that allowed certain individuals to obtain lawful permanent resident status, but she encouraged individuals to apply to this program even though she knew they were not eligible under the terms of the program. So the government indicted her for violating um, the federal statute uh, 1324A1A4, <laughs> as well as the mail fraud statute. And she was convicted. Uh, she argued in the district court that the statute was unconstitutionally void for vagueness and denied her fair notice, uh, went up to appeal on the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit requested supplemental briefing on whether the statute violated the First Amendment because it criminalized too much speech. Um, and the Ninth Circuit ultimately found that the statute was overbroad and the government petitioned for cert. And that's where we are now. That's where we are now. And it's sort of it's sort of curious. I mean, it, it's worth, I think, pausing for a moment to note. Well, I'm not, it's sort of bizarre that we're even hearing this case. There's no circuit split on this. Um, this is a statute that the government really hasn't shown it needs and is rarely invoked. I mean, um, part of their argument on the merits is, don't worry, this this uh, provision never comes up. And we'll never no, use it, we we'll promise. It. Trust <laughs> us. Trust us to exercise our prosecutorial discretion. So, I mean, I, I hate to go back to Bridgegate, which I know has been covered in Always detail Always happy to podcast. go back to the Jersey Shore. <laughs> <laughs> but it, but, it, but it, it brings up Kelly, right? It brings up this Bridgegate case, because in that case, Fagan, who it came out today, is going to be arguing this case next week. Eric Fagan, the Eric, new criminal deputy. Right, deputy solicitor oh, yeah. general. Um, um, and and he's going to be arguing too, and I suspect he'll be saying similar things, which is trust us, right? Trust us. Give us, give these roving prosecutors endless power to make decisions. We promise we won't abuse. It's that a power. no from me, dog. No. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say that's going to be a hard pass. Hard pass. <laughs> hard pass on that. But well, I'm, I'm so sure that the justices who were, um, let's say, unwilling to trust the government in Kelly totally. when it came to the prosecution right. of state and local officials will be equally skeptical of the government's ability to exercise prosecutorial discretion in immigration and drug cases. Right, Melissa? I, I mean, obviously. <laughs> if there's yeah. any context in which they'd exercise discretion, I'm sure it would be there. Definitely in drugs. So can, can we maybe, one of the questions in this case, you know, we're kind of joking about how there's all this discretion. Why would there be so much discretion under the text of the statute, and why is it so kind of objectionable from a First Amendment standpoint? Right. So, I mean, I think, it, you know, on its face, it seems to violate the First Amendment pretty clearly. And it's interesting, the government does these sort of crazy gymnastics in its brief to try to argue to rewrite the statute, actually, because I think they recognize how problematic it is. But um, this statute does, it criminalizes encouraging unlawful immigration um, or someone to remain in the country without authorization, which would potentially criminalize frankly, all the work that my incredible clinic students are doing here at BU Law, um, the work that immigration advocates and attorneys are doing to tell a client, um, you can stay. You might be eligible for relief. Let's pursue that relief. And the penalty for that is five years in prison if the financial gain um, sentencing enhancement is added. It's potentially 10 years in prison. So we're talking about pretty severe penalties that could encompass a wide range of behavior. Uh, and that, that's the point that the city of San Francisco makes in its amicus briefs. And San Francisco, along with a number of other localities, has a huge stake in this because 
many of the city's social services are available to all comers, um, regardless of immigration status. And so one of the things San Francisco says here is that it deters cities from providing basic services to all comers, and more importantly, in engaging in any kind of political speech um, that might be in favor of immigrant rights. And again, the key word here is political speech, which enjoys far greater First Amendment protection than other kinds of speech. So they're making a very calculated decision here, but also staking out some real ground for cities and localities. Um, and, and so there's an interesting kind of federalism dimension that they're leaning on here, that these are services and um, things that states and localities do all of the time. Like this is supposed to be what the court loves. We love federalism. We love <laughs> zones of authority for states and local government. Well, this is that. And you need to lean all the way back. Yeah. Something yeah. tells me there might be a difference when it involves non-citizens, but, but maybe. I mean. <laughs> so the facts of this case, I feel like, are bad for the defendant. Mm -hmm. um, you yes. know, she in, you know, encouraged these individuals to apply for a program that they were obviously not um, eligible for. You know, on the other hand, that was something that the government could and did prosecute her for under the mail fraud statute. And as we're suggesting, like the issue in this case is, as the Ninth Circuit framed it, and as it comes up to the court, whether the statute is overbroad. That is, even if this particular defendant's conduct could be criminalized, whether the statute also applies to too many cases of constitutionally protected speech. Right. And you know, you mentioned the example of your clinic providing assistance to some individuals to in, you know remain in the United States while they are seeking um, to adjust uh, their status. But there are a bunch of other examples as well. You know, you mentioned the um, amicus brief, Melissa, of the city council um, that, you know, includes some provision of services to individuals who lack legal authorization to be here. There's also, you know, charity workers, religious leaders, community organizers, either arguing, you know, that individuals should stay to test the validity of certain statutes or because, like, they think they might ultimately obtain adjustment of status, you know, or it's just like political dissidents. And it, the court has suggested that overbreath is a disfavored remedy. That is, they don't generally like to invalidate statutes on the ground that you know they apply to too many individuals whose speech is constitutionally protected. But here, the statute really does seem to sweep super broadly. And I thought that the respondent's brief for Ms. Sinanang-Smith was extremely effective at knocking down the government's arguments mm -hmm. for why they needed this particular statute. Um, so the respondent's brief is uh, led by a team of lawyers at Wilmer Hale. Um, I previously worked there. I feel the need to disclose that. Um, <laughs> uh, but I, I, I think two of them on the brief are like two of the best lawyers that I know, and also you know two extremely good human beings, Mark Fleming and Alan Schoenfeld. But basically, their argument is all of the government's theories could be prosecuted under other criminal statutes, yes. and that perfectly exemplifies that this statute has to sweep more broadly than all of the bad cases that the government trots out because they could just prosecute them under other provisions. And so what's this one for, if not for reaching some of these more questionable cases of constitutionally protected speech? And, and, the and the government's point that they don't actually need to use this just sort of further bolsters the point that's being made in that brief. Like, like, we don't actually have to do It also undercuts the point that the city makes. So one of the things the city mentions in its amicus brief, City of San Francisco and other localities, is that um, this section, in order for cities to get these block grants from the federal government, they actually have to certify that they are not violating the terms of this particular statute. So the idea that the government is not using it 
is actually false. I mean, it's sort of passive, but it is being used. And there's a really interesting, I think, dichotomy between textualism on the one hand and purposivism on the other. And Leah's talked about this before and in her work, but generally it's the conservatives who are always talking about textualism and the liberals talking about purposivism. But here we kind of see a dichotomy with the government sort of saying like the purpose of this statute is not to be used at all. And <laughs> right. yeah. the t- and then, you know, the response and Ms. Sinanang Smith is saying, but the text of it is so obviously broad and meant to capture all kinds of activity. And it's worth noting because we're here in Massachusetts that in fact, the government has prosecuted um, defendants under this statute here in Massachusetts and district court, we had a case, Henderson, which had some really sort of interesting facts. A woman who works for CBP, who worked for Customs and Border Patrol, was employing an undocumented immigrant to clean her house and giving her really robust, hard-hitting legal advice like, if you're undocumented, you should file paperwork. And do you have a U.S. baby here? Maybe you could get status. Um, and and that, that undocumented immigrant uh, cooperated with CBP to surreptitiously record this employer, and then she was prosecuted under this statute, right? So, it, you know, to say that we don't need this, we don't use it, well, in fact, it has been used. That case, you know, she was actually convicted, although it was later overturned. Um, but I think, you know, there could be some interesting bedfellows here because of the way this cuts. The other thing that uh, really is interesting to me in these overbreadth cases is that it feels to me like the arguments you usually see from the government and from the criminal defendant are switched. So in a normal case, the government will be seeking this, you know, broad, expansive view of federal criminal law. Um, But here you have the government saying, no, 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 you should take a very narrow reading of it. Um, And you have the criminal defendant saying, no, you should interpret it incredibly broadly. And also you should interpret it not to have a mens rea requirement, which it's like down is up and, you know, there's summer in the winter. It's it's a little uh, a little interesting to me. Absolutely. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see, I think, um, what happens. And Mark Fleming, who's arguing, who you mentioned at Wilbur Hill, is fantastic, has had a lot of success in in, um, previous immigration related cases and Jude Lang and and, uh, Mathis and and Reyes Mata. So I think it'll be um, really interesting legal argument um, against Fagan, of course. Do you have any predictions? Gosh, I mean, I you know, I, I can't, what I'm most sort of curious about what we were t- chatting about earlier um, is whether this case comes down um, the same as Bridgegate for the same reasons, right? If you've got the government saying, trust us, um, is the court going to rule one way f- when it comes to non-citizens and the other way when it comes to, you know, New Jersey, the New Jersey government officials? I, I don't know. Um, it's hard not to make the comparison, right, when you've got Fagan arguing both sides, but... For both, both cases. Yeah, I, I did want to highlight two of the arguments that the government is making uh, specifically because I think that these arguments kind of illustrate in some ways the weakness of the government's position. Um, uh, you mentioned that they were trying to rewrite the statute, and that's one of the arguments yes. that I want to touch on. But the other argument that the government make, is making is, well, this statute can't possibly be constitutionally overbroad because we charge Ms. Sinanang <laughs> Smith with a sentencing han- enhancement. That is, we didn't just charge her with encouraging or inducing people to remain in the United States without legal authorization. We also charged her with an, a sentencing enhancement that applied a higher sentence for individuals convicted of that crime if they were doing so for a profit. And that is just a completely bonkers view of <laughs> right. Wait, doesn't overbreath. Right, but right. you have to be convicted of the base, the predicate There's offense. There's still an underlying the enhancement. Right, and I, so I went to a First Amendment colleague of mine because I'm thinking, okay, well, I'm an immigration scholar, I'm not a First Amendment scholar, maybe I'm missing something. This doesn't seem to be a credible legal argument, and, and his analysis was, in short, this is bananas. Um, <laughs> right, which the Gwen Stefani <laughs> school of jurisprudence. <laughs> <laughs> He then spelled it out, B-A-N-A-N-E-S. 
Yeah, but it, 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 it would be like, you know, as a respondent kind of points out in the brief, like if there was a statute that just criminalized speech critical of the president, and then there was a sentencing enhancement for specifically issuing threats to the president, and you're like, oh, well, it's fine to criminalize criticism of the president, because we could always charge it with a sentencing enhancement of actually issuing a threat. Like, that's not how First Amendment doctrine works. Right. It's a totally nonsense argument, but they really dig in. Yeah. Like, they really want to die on that hill, and I, I, I don't quite see how that's going to how that's going to go well for them. Yeah. One thing I wanted to also note is that the, there's a kind of change in position, I think, that the government made uh, from the case when it was in the district court and the court of appeals and now. So in the court of appeals, I think during oral argument, the government expressly said this is not a solicitation statute. This is different from aiding and abetting. And their position now is that although the text of the statute refers to inducing or encouraging, we should construe encouraging to mean soliciting or aiding and abetting. And and I think I'm actually sympathetic in in this situation to the SG in a way, because I think... I, I, I just want to note that, okay, that Melissa's face had no subsection. chill. There's a separate subsection no, that specifically no, no, no. criminalizes yeah. aiding right. and abetting. Yes. So it's this the very next subsection, in fact. It's the and very next subsection that says aiding and abetting. It would mean that like, you're saying this is aiding and abetting, aiding and abetting. But the sympathy that I have is the you know slight switches in position. I think there's always a lot of criticism. Like, you've changed your mind. On the other hand, it's quite common for once a case gets up into the Supreme Court, you have different attorneys, you want to make slightly different arguments. Um, and they also say that the um, that the defendant has changed her position and she's offering new arguments in the Supreme Court. So I feel like they, there can be some. Yeah, so that's true. Ways. But like on this particular example, I think it's really problematic for the government because the government's main thrust of its brief is trust us, right? Like we <laughs> promise we will interpret the statute in a very limited, constrained, principled yeah. way. And then it turned out they weren't even able literally to adopt a unified theory throughout this particular case. Like, right. Right, our trust in them is is lost. Right, but I mean, it's just it is honestly. I think we should pause for a moment. Like, it's literally the next subsection of the statute right. that is aiding and abetting. So the idea that and Congress it's aiding and abetting any of the things that precede it. Correct, exactly. Yeah. So to suggest that this is a solicitation or aiding and abetting statute, and to ask the court to rewrite the statute. So, so why did the court take this? Because this is like this is actually because the Ninth Circuit invalidated a federal statute exactly. in the SG petition for cert. That's why. I mean, it feels it's. <laughs> And it's hard not to, you know, in this particular political moment, it's hard not to feel like this has particular political resonance, um, given what it's about and the kinds of conduct that it could cover. Mm-hmm. Also, First Amendment, there's a, a, a special, you know, cert worthiness for First Amendment cases. There just is. There's a lot of uh, a lot of folks on the court who are really interested in First Amendment stuff. There's a lot of law clerks who are really interested in First Amendment stuff, and I feel like it's a it's a kind of bonus for for a cert petition. And if you would like to read the paragraph that explains why the respondent should win on that First Amendment argument, read the first paragraph of respondent's yeah. brief. Sarah, thank you so much thank for you joining all us so much. about thank this. You. Yes, thank you, Sarah. people we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high whether it's keeping the senate taking back the house or stopping republicans at the state level if you're ready to make a real difference sign up for vote save america's 2024 volunteer program and just to make it interesting we're pitting you against each other vote save america will sort you onto a team east or west and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about the team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com and this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidates committee. Guys, it's been a rough year. 
It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. So the next case, um, which Jamie will relay for all of you um, is one that should be, I think, on the top of your radars. This is Salo Law. Huge case. Versus the CFPB. Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And Uh, a man named Paul is arguing it. Uh, so before I would just like just like to note the origins of like before Elizabeth Warren killed Michael Bloomberg, like, <laughs> like literally murdered him repeatedly. By like, the way, over and over Elizabeth and over Warren again. knows that even when the dragon seems down, you kill the dragon again. <laughs> it's true, Drogon. She's like. <laughs> Um, so before she killed Michael Bloomberg 150, 11 million times, she gave birth to the CFPB. <laughs> That's where I was going with Elizabeth that. Warren, mother of the CFPB. It's like the circle of life. <laughs> okay. All right. And I have to tell you, when I was a law student at Harvard, um, uh, Elizabeth Warren was my contracts professor, and I distinctly remember one day we were. Did having- she walk up at the front of the class and announce, "Here's a provision that will release employees from NDAs if anyone ever wants to use this"? No, they, she did not have that opportunity. But what she did do is she came into class one day and she, you know, was talking about. I think we were talking about contracts and contracts of adhesion and toasters and things blowing up. And she told us about this idea that she had for what she called at the time. I think it was the Consumer Financial Safety. Safety Commission um, and how dun, it was dun, dun. And, and it was like this and she had written a law review article about it and how you know it's it's a, you know it'll probably never come to fruition but it's kind of a cool idea you know keep dreaming Liz <laughs> fast forward um, you know a decade or so um, and we have this case that is questioning or challenging the constitutionality of the CFPB. When the CFPB was initially um, proposed, it was intended to be a multi-member commission, um, and but it ended up being passed as an agency with a single director to be appointed by the president and removed only for, quote, inefficiency, neglect of duty, or malfeasance. It's basically a four-cause remo- removal provision. And the question is whether that type of removal authority is constitutional, it's generally understood that the power to appoint 
also encompasses the power to remove. Um, and that's because we have a three-branch system of government. There aren't four branches, which means that administrative agencies need to be accountable to the executive. And the way that happens is through the power of removal. So what? Uh, so in this case, you have Sela Law, which is a law firm that was being investigated by the CFPB and didn't want to turn over documents. So it just challenged the constitutionality. It's of catching. <laughs> it's what? It's catching. Yes. People not wanting to turn over documents. There you go. <laughs> so just challenge the constitutionality of the agency, and you can avoid doing so for many, many years. Um, in the Supreme Court, interestingly, the government actually conceded the unconstitutionality of this four-cause removal provision. And so right now, the the government and Sela Law are on the same side, essentially, with one tweak that we'll talk about. Um, but they have two basic arguments. The first argument is that Four-cause removal of agency heads is presumptively unconstitutional. And they say, sure, court, you have occasionally allowed this, but only in narrow circumstances, and this case is totally different. And so the primary case the parties talk about is this case called Humphrey's Executor, um, which upheld four-cause removal for members of the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission. And what the petitioner says is, well, this case is totally different from that because that was a multi-member commission. And multi-member commissions have to you know, reach consensus, and that protects people from arbitrary decision-making. Uh, and so th that's fine. But this is not that situation. The problem with that is the, the Supreme Court also upheld for-cause removal in a case called Morrison, which involved a single head um, of an administrative body. Um, it was the Office of Special Counsel. So what the, the petitioner says about that is, well, yeah, but that office is has a very narrow investigative authority. They don't look at the public generally. It's just about kind of uh, federal personnel issues. Um, and then there are other removal cases, but but the petitioner basically says all of those are distinguishable. Um, the, the, the court has never upheld for-cause removal of a single director agency with these massive enforcement powers who is accountable to no one. And then the second argument is, if you don't believe us that that Humphrey's executor case is, is, is distinguishable, you should overturn it. Um, and the thing that's most, no and this is a 90-year-old case that is basically the bedrock of the modern administrative state. And the stare decisis section of the Sela Law's brief is less than two pages. And of the government's brief is one paragraph, which... I feel like says something about the state of stare it's decisis. Like sitting it's around for wearing stare decisis is for sucker exactly. t-shirts, writing yes. briefs. <laughs> we need to make those. We Strict do. We, should, like, we need, to, we need to do suckers. that. We do. Before the court starts yeah. making them for yeah. us. <laughs> so Lear and Melissa, do you want to talk a little bit about who is, is trying to argue for the CFPB? <sighs> I think his name is Paul. He <laughs> Most likely. I think it might be Paul. Exactly. Uh, it's a safe guess, uh, this particular argument sitting. Yes, yeah, so this was a case in which Justice Kagan selected Paul Clement to argue to defend the constitutionality of the CFPB structure. This might have actually been the move where Elena Kagan goes back to her office and strokes a hairless cat for a half an hour. <laughs> It is kind of a genius move. It is. Um, uh, and honestly, his brief, Paul Clement's brief, did not disappoint. It is excellent. It's, it's, a, it's a good brief. Yeah. Um, I, I don't even know where to start. It has everything in it. It has <laughs> exit ramps. It has responses to the stare decisis question. It has a unifying theory of all of the, uh, all of the Supreme Court's cases. Like it's beautiful. It's a pl the, the platonic ideal of a brief. It has some, let's say, kind of baller moves in the brief. You know, first the uh, it is the Jennifer Lopez and Hustlers dancing yes. to Fiona Apple brief. <laughs> it is. Right? It's like I've been a bad, bad girl. <laughs> it's that so kind of first. Brief. 
Paul comes out swinging in his fur coat and <laughs> devotes a mere two paragraphs, basically, to the government's main theory in which it is using to distinguish the CFEB from Humphrey's executor. You know, the government's main theory is this is a single director agency. Therefore, that's completely different than Humphrey's executor. And Paul disposes of that in two paragraphs, signaling like what kind of utter bullshit that is, because it's just not a distinction that makes any difference whatsoever when you are thinking about the extent of presidential control. Because... Who is easier to control, a single member body or a multi-member body? And like, gets, it's he, not hard. He gets a Constance Wu assist <laughs> from my colleagues at NYU, Rachel Barco, um, Kurti Datla, and Ricky Rivez, write this amicus brief where um, they're administrative law scholars. And basically, their whole point is, like, if you're going to rest government, your whole th- or government and SELA, your whole theory on this idea that multi-member boards are somehow easier to control, well... There's huge diversity in multi-member boards. They can be appointed differently. They have different kind of removal requirements. They deliberate differently. So all of that is kind of bananas. So that wouldn't be it. And then they make this really important point. Don't go down the multi-member avenue because the real multi-member body that you definitely don't want to touch is the The Federal Reserve, right? Nobody wants to touch the Fed. And they talk about all of these other cases where among the justices talk about the distinctiveness of the Federal Reserve and how they don't want to endanger it, how Brett Kavanaugh in his dissent in the other CFPB case, um, PHH Corp versus CFPB, which was heard by the D.C. Circuit in 2018, suggests that the Federal Reserve Board might be thought of as an anomaly. Like, <laughs> right. Don't touch it. Well, there are, so, there are so many distinctions you can identify between these different agencies, and if a distinction as, frankly, irrelevant to the extent of presidential control as a single director versus multi-member yeah. structure can make an agency unconstitutional, then you're opening up... You're going down that road. Exactly. The avenue to identify all these other possible distinctions. And nobody wants to touch the statutes. Fed because, FYI, that's a recession. What I really loved about Paul Clement's brief it, is it offered a very clear, cohesive theory of all of the court's cases. It says, we can divide all of the court's cases on removal into two categories. Number one, The court has always said it's unconstitutional if Congress tries to allocate to someone other than the president the power to remove. So if Congress says you the president can remove with consent of the Senate, no good. If Congress says, you know, the SEC has power to remove certain individuals, no good. But aside from that, uh, Congress can place what he calls modest restrictions on removability and uh, allowing the president to remove someone for inefficiency, for neglect of duty or misfeasance is giving the president a lot of rope. So it's not that big of a deal. I would say the weakness in this argument that I see, it's very neat, it's tidy, it's pretty. The weakness is I do think it kind of ignores the bajillion cases in which the court has really emphasized the importance of removal as a as a check on agency authority, um, and it kind of glosses over that. And it also doesn't have a very big limiting principle because it would suggest that Congress can just create any agency it wants. You mean like the administrative state? (laughs) (laughs) A little bit, a little bit. So the other thing I really liked about the Clement brief, Paul's brief, um, is the insistence on judicial restraint, which I think he is speaking directly to the chief justice, not this time not trolling him, but actually speaking directly to him. And there are all of these 
off ramps that he offers the court. So one is this, I mean, I guess I would call it a standing issue. Um, He argues that the actual heart of this dispute is about the investigation of Sela and whether that investigation is proper. And that really is very attenuated to the question of whether the director of the CFPB is removable for cause or not. So he sort of suggests like the injury here seems very tenuous and and that's a problem. On a prudential basis, he suggests that even if you could satisfy Article 3 standing and this was justiciable, there would be lots of reasons to avoid taking this case up on the merits because it's kind of artificial, right? I mean, like, again, this is a dispute about an investigation, not about the structure of this agency. And and he suggests, like, don't worry, there will be a better case that squarely presents the question of the constitutionality of the structure. You don't have to manufacture it with this. Yeah. And in particular, we know the civil investigative demand that was directed towards Sela is not affected by or traceable to the removal restrictions because it was continued by the acting director who was definitely removable at will. And it's now been confirmed by the current CFPB director who is conceding that she is removable at will. And so there's all of those events well, suggest actually the removal restrictions is not really relevant. Yeah, to the she's, she's a Trump CID. appointee and she's right. like, I take my cues from the president, or right. what he said. So what Paul says is that you should wait until a case, uh, until there's a case in which the director has actually been removed and is challenging it. Um, and, and that's what kind of Humphrey's executor and all of these other cases involve. I, I have to say, I don't find that super compelling because I think if the argument for for cause removal is that it is a, it's a kind of imposition on our liberty and that regulated entities are, you know, there's agency capture issues and there's arbitrary decision making. So I do think to me, it does make some sense that the individuals who are actually being regulated or, you know, uh, the, the act is being enforced against them should have the ability to challenge that structure. Like, like whether you actually substantively agree with the position, I think what he's doing is giving the four yes. liberals on the court enough grist to grind the mill and to like yeah. make the chief justice really you know either fish or cut bait are you an yeah. umpire or are you know are you up for judicial modesty yeah. or not and i do think that the the, the 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 fact that the acting director ratified this expressly that wasn't even addressed at all in the opening mm-hmm. brief which right. i found a little surprising i will say um because i do think well so the, in in the reply what the petitioner um represented by canon chamigan says is there's no actual doctrine that Paul Clement invokes, which is true. I mean, it's not really standing. It's not really mootness. It's it's a kind of prudential, this is not a good vehicle issue. It is a strange kind of uh, doctrineless um, avenue, but it's like... It's, he is driving an Uber and he's like, we can get off here, yeah. we can get off here, or we can decide this on the merits. And then there's sort of a narrow, and this is another great part of this brief, like you could decide this quite narrowly by simply removing the four cause issue and making this person removable at will. Or you can take this incredibly sweeping, sorry, decisis is for suckers route. That's another exit ramp where we just obliterate the administrative state and Humphrey's executor. And then we drive off a cliff like Thelma and Louise. So on severability, that's the one place that the government and the petitioner are not in agreement. So what the petitioner says is, if you, if this is unconstitutional, you should either just 
decide this case in reverse and not decide what impact this has on the statute as a whole, which seems unlikely. Um, or you should <laughs> you should uh, declare the entire Consumer Financial Protection Act unconstitutional as a whole, every aspect of it, every every you know prohibition, everything. And the government says. This is not hard. There's a severability clause. <laughs> there was purposely a severability clause. Yeah, you can clause. just get rid of four-cause removal and make the director removable at will, and the, the problem is gone. But the petitioner says that, I mean, this is sort of weird. It's kind of like, you know, the Dion Warwick part of this brief where <laughs> the petitioner tries to read Congress's mind. Like, what Congress really would have wanted in lieu of just getting rid of the for the removal for a cause and putting in this removal at will is to make this a multi-member yeah. body, which yeah. you can't do because that would be too much for you, Court, even right. though this whole sorry decisis thing, that would be enough. Um, that's too much for you to do. So instead, just get rid of the whole statute. Which is, incidentally, exactly what the government is arguing in the Affordable Care Act case in, in trying to strike down the entire Affordable Care Act because... Congress would not have wanted uh, a, a mandateless um, act, I mean, which, by the way, Congress enacted in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. I kind of think that the most likely outcome is that the court says this is unconstitutional, but um, severability applies. Let's sever it. Yeah, I agree. So I thought it was interesting here that there are so many amicus briefs from members of Congress. Yes. Like, don't you have laws to pass? Like, why are you in legal writing? Like, I'm pretty doing? sure they don't they don't pass laws right now. They just confirm judicial appointees. Yes. Um, ooh, sorry. Ooh, hot True. burn. Okay. I don't think they would take that as a burn. No. I think they would say <laughs> yes, like, exactly. Yes, that's exactly what we're doing. Um, so, so there's actually a brief from Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island, Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut, and Maisie Hirono of Hawaii, um, and they have been actually big brief writers yes. this term. Um, they also filed writing a brief. some spicy takes. They, they do have some spicy takes. Yeah. Um, they also had spicy takes in the Nice Serpa case, the yeah, gun rights yeah. case that we talked about earlier. Um, but they filed a brief um, with Sussman Godfrey. Steve Sussman was the counsel of record on this one. And this is basically like a kind of law review about all the ways that they hate the unitary executive theory and how the unitary executive theory is basically the root of everything that is wrong with government today and it is it is the foundation for the effort to completely undermine the administrative state and possibly take down democracy yes um i mean i don't think i'm being that's a tldr of the brief they cite this piece from jillian metzger um her harvard forward she's a professor at columbia law school i love this piece the harvard forward 1930s redux the administrative state under siege this is the the 2017 harvard law review forward and she basically talks about the fear that the Roberts court, um, as a, she says, has gained the reputation as a pro-business court, thereby reinforcing perceptions of it as anti-regulatory, and it has become increasingly polarized. Um, that was in 2017, and I think they're saying, like, yeah, everything she said only, like, 150 times Which more. I think comes back to Justice Kagan's appointment of Paul Clement. Yes. Which is so interesting to me because I think, I don't know, if I could get in Justice Kagan's head and, no, and I should never do that, I would imagine, you know, maybe she still has faith that, that, that the court can come together and reach a result. And so she's going to kind of give them on a silver platter, this conservative gray haired man who will give them. Named argument. Paul. Yes, named Paul, 
who will give them arguments that they can use and all this will do and they can reach a consensus decision and this will shore up the legitimacy and confidence in the court. Yeah, I don't think that's going to happen, Elena. <laughs> but keep stroking the hairless cat. <laughs> I, I do think it was genius to appoint yes. a conservative to yes. defend the For CFPB. Sure. I mean, it's totally a playing against type. Perhaps we should move on to our next segment. I am so excited. I am so excited. We have a little ray of sunshine coming up to the stage. Please welcome BU's resident genius, Danielle Citron. So we cannot imagine okay. doing this episode without also having a conversation with Danielle. Um, and we wanted to discuss how two pieces of her Mm, tons of different kind of multifaceted work touch on the Supreme Court and Supreme Court commentary. So again, it bears repeating that Danielle is not just a genius regularly, but she's an acknowledged genius from the MacArthur Foundation. She is a winner of this one of this year's MacArthur Genius Grants. <laughs> for her work on cyber civil rights. And um, so I am especially interested in your work on deep fakes. So first yeah. of all, can you tell us what is a deep fake? Okay, so a deep fake is a technology that allows us to manipulate or to totally fabricate from digital whole cloth. Video and audio showing people do I know you can't take me seriously. Should I take this take off? Take it off. Or like yes. everyone out? <laughs> okay. Uh, doing and saying something that you never did or said. Um, and the technology begins like so many things do online in the in the sort of recesses of the internet with porn. Uh, so in 2017, there's a subreddit devoted to deepfake sex videos. And it then the tools to create deepfakes are really democratized. So you go to YouTube and there are countless tutorials about how to make deepfake videos. Um, and like so many things, I sort of feel like the, the canaries in the coal mine of how we abuse technology is it's often women and marginalized people. And so, and then they go mainstream and then hostile state actors use them. And then Michael Bloomberg just tweets it and, out. And Michael Bloomberg, like, let's have a minute. Yeah. Okay. Um, but, you know, what we've seen is... Um, he came back from the dead. He did. To create a deep fake. Exactly. Himself alive. And, 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 and with deep regret from all of us. Like, <laughs> dude, don't go into the deep fake business. It is not working for you. Right. But um, so of the 15,000 deep fake videos online, 96% um, are deep fake sex videos and 99% are of women's faces inserted into porn without their consent. Um, and it's true. So many folks, when we talk about deep fake, say, Danielle and my co-author, Bobby Chesney, you're sort of blowing things out of proportion. And I think, you know, our feeling was... A, we're not blowing out of proportion because there's a tremendous amount of harm in the here and the now to, to, to largely women and, and women mm -hmm. of color and trans women, um, folks who have been inserted into porn without their permission um, and often with their names attached, their home addresses, their sites that their entire business model is online advertising um, for the encouragement of user-generated content, user-generated deepfake sex videos. So there's harm in the here and the now. And there's harm in the here and the now in a way that involves state actors because we saw with Rana Ayub, a, a, an extraordinary journalist in India mm -hmm. who has whose work exposed the corruption of the Hindu nationalist government 
um, and she's a Muslim woman, and she was targeted a year and a half ago with a deep fake sex video, so it showed her engaging in a sex act in which she never engaged in, and within 48 hours, it was wildfire. It was on half of the phones in India, spread mm-hmm. via WhatsApp, Facebook, Twitter. Um, her Twitter feed, her email inbox, her texts were all overwhelmed with death and rape threats. And it was all intended to silence her critiques Absolutely. of the Modi government. And it achieved its result for a good mm-hmm. six months. Um, even the UN Council on Human Rights issued a statement saying, we're afraid for her safety. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like she was making it up, right? Um, so, I mean, I, I get yeah. we're totally sympathetic to this claim that you are being hyperbolic and calling things yep. out. We, we, we have said before, we constantly feel like we are Cassandra destined to know the truth and not be believed. That's just another... And let's have a moment. The best Cassandras I know, God bless, love you guys. <laughs> As I listen every week or more to Strict Scrutiny, <laughs> Thank- I think I've got my sisters. I'm good. <laughs> One of the things that you yeah. and Bobby Chesney... Um, highlight in your California Law Review article. Just, just came put out. That out here. Just came out, hot off the presses. Download it while it's hot. Um, you note that this really has important consequences for democratic institutions, yeah. um, government, the economy. Like, imagine on the eve yeah. of Snapchat's IPO, there was a deep fake of you know, the CEO doing something totally terrible or questionable that would have been harmful for the initial public offering or imagine more particularly um, the eve of the 2020 election on like the famous October surprise. What if the October surprise is a video of one of the candidates doing something that she never said? Right. Or gravely (laughs) ill. Right. And so people, you know, undermine the process because they don't go to vote. Yeah. And and so fundamental to all of this is just the decay of our trust in the integrity of elections, as well as as much as Bobby and I really worry about people believing fakes. Yeah. We're also deeply worried that not only that we'll start to disbelieve the truth. This is the liar's dividend. Yeah. So not only then are we more inclined to believe the deep fake, because when we then start becoming skeptical of deep fakes, when we start being educated about the prospect of deep fakes, it also makes us more skeptical of things that might actually be true. So imagine, for example, you had a presidential candidate saying that he could grab women by their private parts because yeah. he was a star. Imagine. Um, imagine if really? that happened. And they just let him do it. And they let him do it because oh. he's a star. You might be inclined to disbelieve that as a deep fake because you are recognizing that these deep fakes happen. So this is the liar's dividend. And wait, ready? And our guy, you know, he capitalized this on hypothetical. This hypothetical guy capitalized on this possibility by about... A year after the access how hypothetical tape uh, comes out, says, I never, oh, that was a totally doctored audio, never happened. And that interview with Lester Holt about, in which I say that, you know, Russia is why I fired Comey, that didn't happen. That either. was a deep fake, too. That was a deep fake. That's the liar's That's dividend. That's the liar's dividend. Like using our skepticism, education about deep fakes to escape accountability for wrongdoing. Right. So, so can I pivot? Um, yeah. That sort of deep fakes, video, audio that can disrupt democracy, disrupt democratic institutions. How do deep fakes impact SCOTUS? Okay. So, uh, you know, Jamie, we were slightly talking about this. So 
um, you know, we have seen video and audio be taken as total truth by the Supreme Court, right? In the Scott versus Harris case, all my, where my Civ Pro kids. I see. Well, yeah, woohoo! I just want to note for the audience, um, who's not the people listening at home, these are incredibly glowy, happy Boston University law students. I love my they students. They look tan, they look rested, well fed. Like, you guys are doing something great here. The cutest and the smartest. Definitely. Gotta say. Okay. So, so in Scott versus Harris, right, the Supreme Court is presented with a question on summary judgment if the court can. Basically, look at a video of a man driving incredibly fast away from the police and say the video basically speaks for itself. Yep. That is, there's one way to look at the video. And there were no signs that the video had been doctored. But it is this powerful sense that when we see something, we can, of course, believe what we see and hear. And so that's the power of the video. So that's, yep. I guess we could make up some good SCOTUS. I was, you know, have we thought of some good some ones? Some of our listeners have. So, for example, oh, you know, us. the Chief okay. Justice, um, uh, all of his pictures in the impeachment trial. Oh. One of our most wonderful listeners, Adam Music, photoshopped some strict scrutiny swag onto the Wasn't there Chief a coffee Justice. cup, right? Like a strict yeah. scrutiny coffee cup? Exactly. Like he had a coffee cup. Yeah. He had a baseball cap. Oh, yeah. My dog, Stevie Nicks, was sitting right next to him um, in her enforcing but, the Voting Rights but he Act did bandana. But didn't have this. Well, I she mean, was wearing a slightly different band okay so so what i love about this is you talk about you know the first amendment implications of the discussion of deep fakes because parody and satire are a really important critical first amendment protected activity um and in situations like the you know chief justice it is obvious what's happening right nobody thinks he's sitting there with (laughs) with a trucker hat on he really had that (laughs) um but some of them it's not always uh, as easy to see and and one thing i loved about the scott versus harris case is there's this footnote that says something like there's no sign that this was doctored and i'm just imagining you've got you know an octogenarian who still gets excited about a fax machine (laughs) i don't know who you're talking about thinking that he'd be able to kind of like discern facially whether a video is doctored or not and um it's like obscenity you know it when you see it totally <laughs> and and what's even scarier I, I love freaking everyone out sorry i feel like every time i give a talk we walk away depressed and and we'll say something to make everyone feel better before we leave but um the no we won't i, I don't okay. have any no. advice for that to be I clear <laughs> religiously depressing. all the time we're gonna walk out depressed but feeling like we learn from the smartest minds okay <laughs> so um right now the technology is such that technologists explain that for at least for audio defects they can't as a technical matter tell the difference between what's real and what's fake the sophistication of generative adversarial network algorithms are so sophisticated that and they suspect that within a beat at least like six to nine months that the video will be so refined that that technologists like Hani Farid, who I do a lot of work with at Berkeley, um, explains that at the arms race, we are, as the technologists building these systems, we're going to lose it. We're, that is, we're going to be behind, if you think of black hats and white hats and gray hats, that the manufacturers of deep fakes, um, they're going to win the game in their the deception. Right. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't mean that journalists can't do on the ground work and figure out, were you there? Did you say what you said? You know, that's what journalism, beautiful, wonderful journalism does. But it's in the moment, especially in social media environments, when a video goes viral 
Um, and you can't detect, just technically speaking, if something is real or fake. And it goes viral, as you said so well. It's going to tip the election. It'll you know slam the IPO. And there, there are some things you can't take back. There have been a lot of studies done, and I've written on this. I know you've written on this about uh, the way that professional women across you know all different kinds of professions are treated on social media. And I just wanted to highlight one study that was done by the Center for Strategic and International Studies, which found that 42% of women parliamentarians yep. had had extremely humiliating or sexually charged images of themselves spread through social media. Yep. These these deep fakes. Um, 42%. I yep. mean that's shocking and in a time where we need to encourage women to run for office to yeah. to you know to put themselves forward to become judges that's horrifying and yeah think about katie hill right katie hill the photos that were taken in confidence and in a consensual relationship with her spouse and girlfriend um she basically is chased out of congress and it does send an incredibly powerful message stay in your lane women yes on that note um we have been so delighted to be here at boston university um thank you dean on willig yeah So can I can I brag a little bit about your dean? You guys have yes. the best dean. Yes. Like again. Angela Anuachi Willig has been like my sister-in-law since 2006. I hired her at Berkeley, raising the number of black women by a hundred percent at that school. <laughs> Uh, and we are so excited to see all the great things that you're doing here at BU. Thank you for having us here. Thank you for lending us your fantastic colleagues, Sarah and Danielle, for this conversation. We have been so delighted to be here. You have an amazing WBUR team here who have done everything to make this whole taping so seamless. We are so, so thank spoiled you. right now. We are so spoiled. Like you guys were the just best hosts. Thank you so much for having us. This was an absolute delight and. It was just wonderful. Can I bust in just for one second? Yes. To, to brag about Leah for a minute. Uh, yes. So Leah Lippman, um, sort of rock star, constitutional law thinker, uh, I met and she edited two of my pieces um, when she was editor-in-chief of the Michigan Law Review. And I said to, I got to meet Leah 10, 11, no, it was like 11 or 12 years ago I came to campus. Um, and meeting her, having had the incredible joy of having her insights and you know, the best kind of law, best comments I've gotten, forget colleagues, just on from anyone. Um, I, I said to Leah, we took a walk, and I was like, you need to be an academic now. <laughs> uh, you need to teach all of us immediately. Um, and it has been such a joy, not only to be your friend, um, but to watch you just take off like a rocket ship and teach all of us. And I always feel so grateful um, knowing you as I have for 12 years, and I, I'm so proud. So can I pile on? Yeah, please, let's pile on. I'm gonna pile Leah, on. I'm gonna I love pile you. On. Okay, you for those of you who are listening at so home, right Leah's face not only has no chill, um, it's Yeah, you red. have no type of chill. <laughs> no chill. No, no chill, type of totally chill. rad. <laughs> I think I just learned Leah's this gonna make year. Melody delete this part. No, we're No, no. It. We're keeping no, it No, no. I think I just learned this year that Leah is untenured. Like, I mean, how is that a thing? How is that a thing? How I is mean, that a thing? I'm giving it to her right now. Like, <laughs> I'm, call, I'm calling her Michigan. Like, it we happens. got this. You, you got strict scrutiny, <laughs> Ted. Oh, yeah!
This is why I love my Dean. <gasps> okay, yes. so for those of you who are listening at home, Dean Anawachi Willig just made a unilateral yes. appointment. We don't worry, be we gotta be with love, Rob Removable Pond. only right? for cause. <laughs> Efficiency and you know she's not going to be in malfeasance. No None way. of that. No she's going to be here forever. Duty, not a chance. Uh, so Le- Leah started strict scrutiny. Like she brought all of us together. She is literally the wind beneath our wings and keeps us going and does all the twittering. I don't wear the ninja strict scrutiny bandana for anyone but you. <laughs> Just saying. Like I will literally do it all. Okay. You are all the best, and like the reason why there are more women who want to be law professors and lawyers, the reason why there are women like me who are willing to be extremely loud lawyers and law professors is because we have models in you and because like you all gave me encouragement and like I remember Melissa I think I got to know you because I was just tweeting at you and emailing you how awesome you were when I like saw you testifying before Congress and I was like I want to be her friend she's so cool (laughs) and um, but just having this support group of women who are fabulous and not afraid to be themselves um, has been the best thing that could happen for anyone professionally or personally and while Things can seem really dark and bleak and hopeless. Having, just sometimes maybe, um, uh, having this group of women who are willing to support one another and just keep propping each other up is, I, I just hope everyone can find that. On that note, thank you, BU. We have lots of people to thank, not just you for your tremendous hospitality. Eddie Cooper, who does our haunting intro music. Thanks to Catherine Fink, who is substitute producing this episode for us while Melody Rowell is away. And, of course, everyone who helps us get this into your ear holes. You can support Strict Scrutiny by going to our website, www.strictscrutinypodcast.com, where you can find all kinds of Strict Scrutiny merchandise including the ninja bandana as discussed tonight sweatshirts checker caps tricolor tees all kinds of cool stuff um some of it worn in deep fake photos of the chief justice (laughs) and you can also support the pod by subscribing through our glow campaign so that is glow.fm backslash strict scrutiny so thank you all for your support please keep your reader reviews coming and let us know what you'd like to hear from us and tweet at us you can follow us at strict scrutiny underscore on Twitter. Thank you. We do have some time for audience questions. I think Alex from WBUR and um, uh, someone else might have a microphone. And because we can't necessarily see the audience. No, we can't. Li- li- okay. Oh, a little bit. Um, well, Melissa, then you can call on people or Sarah can call on people if anyone has questions. I'm going to be like, Paul. Paul. <laughs> Paul. <laughs> Hi, uh, thank you so much for coming to Boston. I really appreciate it. Um, 
I wanted to, uh, so uh, very excited to be talking to, to you, especially Leah, who I followed on Twitter for a few years now, and Melody Rowell as well. I follow her on Twitter. Um, but sort the of, rest of us are feeling a little left out. Well, well, I follow you on Twitter more recently, but them for a few years now. Okay, you're Johnny come lately. It's cool. It's cool. <laughs> anyway, but to that end, I was wondering, do you think that the theory of the unitary executive is necessary to enforce the Voting Rights Act? <laughs> Undoubtedly. Uh, yes, only because everything is necessary to enforce the Voting Rights Act. If adding a citizenship question to the census is necessary to enforce the Voting Rights Act, as, let's say, at least four Supreme Court justices said it was. Is pardoning Roger Stone necessary to enforce the Voting Rights Act? You know it. You know it. I mean, Roger Stone is a civil rights warrior. How can you imagine enforcing the Voting Rights Act if he is in prison? Come on. Roger True. Stone is a victim of lynching. That's what he said. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's, I just no, want to be clear that, that, uh, that Melissa said that. <laughs> um, yes. I'm just saying, he said that on TV. It's like he said this was a lynching. Right. You're right. I, I know okay, I'm right. Roger I carry receipts. I'm a black woman with receipts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love your shirt. Johnny Come Lately, I love it. It's fantastic. He's wearing a shirt that says, has all the female Supreme Court justices. There are only four. It's just a shirt. It's not like <laughs> a gown. Like, We're going to make a, a nice Supreme Court shirt with all of the men named Paul who have argued at the court <laughs> like recently. Like Natalie Portman did when she went to the Oscars. Exactly, like, like all with all the, the female directors embroidered on the coat who Paul, weren't Paul, nominated. Paul, Paul, Paul. Jonathan, Jonathan. <laughs> it's going to be lit. We're going to put that on the merchandise page. So I think we, it looks like we're out of time. Um, uh, Sorry, we were just, again, so excited to talk to your fabulous faculty uh, that we went a little bit long. uh, But we will stay here to mill. We have some strict scrutiny stickers, as well as some women also know law stickers that we would love to distribute. So thank you again so much for being one of us. Thanks so much. I feel like I should be...